taken up in Exodus, the 12th chapter, in the 21st, I'm sorry, the 30, 30th verse. We left off of the 30th verse. We're going to overlap with that as we begin this week. Let's stand together, for we are here not to hear the word of man, but the word of the living God who speaks even from Scripture. The Spirit who of old inspired these words is now at work through the preaching of the word that in all things Christ would have the preeminence. Exodus chapter 12, verse 30. So Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Arise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough, which they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leaven, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years, and it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. The one's house, I'm sorry, in one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside of the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought to the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. As far the word of God, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O oh Lord our God, as we return to the midst of the book of Exodus and when we come even to this critical, this pivotal, this, this long anticipated moment uh, for us as hearers, but O oh Lord, what we hear, how long. The church of old had anticipated this moment and waited on you in faith. Surely some discouraged and some despairing. And yet, Lord, you kept your promise to Abraham. 
Surely you have made promises to us in Christ Jesus, and you keep these also. Lord, we pray that as we hear these words, that we would see Christ and Christ magnified, that we would heed the warnings of the Scriptures. We do pray that in all things Christ would have the preeminence. By your Spirit, O God, bless the preaching of your Word as well as our hearing of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Children, I want you to think about something with me. What what one day of the year do you really look forward to? I imagine as a child, maybe it's your birthday. Some of you right now might be counting down the days to your next birthday. You're really looking forward to it. Or when it gets a little later on here, we, we might tend to be counting the days to the last day of school when summer arrives. Or maybe even people now are thinking about, well, what, when's Christmas going to be here? I look forward to the arrival of autumn. I love this season that we've just entered into. I don't know that I count the days down, but I, I look for the signs and for the evidences that it is coming. Maybe there's a special day that you are thinking of that, that I haven't named in this moment. We all have special days that we long for or we look back and, and remember their events, uh, anniversaries, celebrations of certain key events in our lives. It's the way God has made us. These are, are special days and it's, it's fun to, to count down that. It's, it's a good thing to have that anticipation, that expectation But few days are as special as the day that Israel was looking forward to. That day when the Lord would set them free from slavery in Egypt. Slavery. So we sit here. It seems so remote, so distant, uh, really incomprehensible to us to be a slave. These uh, children of Abraham, they, they had lived in Egypt for some 400 years. Each day they they were up at a set hour. Each day they had tasks set before them. They had taskmasters that drove them forth and made great demands upon them. We heard how when Moses went to Pharaoh the first time and said, let my people go, the message of God that he, he made their labors more difficult. He says, you're lazy. No longer will straw be supplied to you. You'll have to find that as well. The Israelites suffered under great slavery. But they had a promise. God said that they would return. God had promised to Abraham, their father, that after 400 years of slavery, they would be free and they'd return to a land of promise. Now, we can think of different parts of our country. It's easy to think of even states that uh, you've never been to. You, you might see something in a movie or uh, watch a travelogue. And, you know, the YouTube um, opens up a host of ways to see states you've never been. But for these children of Israel, the land of promise was something hard to imagine, even as freedom was hard to imagine. All they had known as slaves, their fathers, their grandfathers, their great-grandfathers, going back for many generations with slavery. Oh, there would have been stories perhaps passed down, some recollections of, of Jacob and his sons, their, their fathers, the, the heads of each of their tribes, things that they might have remembered of that land. you think that it's possible that for some, maybe for many, that they thought, you know, I'm really not so sure it's going to happen. I'm not really sure that, that, there, that, that there is this God of Abraham. You know, we hear about the Lord, Jehovah God, but is He real? You know, as much as we might think this is hard to imagine, what about our own situation? What about, what about the slavery of sin? Do we really take that seriously? I suspect that for most of us, we're more comfortable with sin and slavery to sin than if suddenly we were uh, all put in shackles and 
ushered out the door to go labor in fields or factories for someone else. In some sense, that would seem more odious, more onerous and harsh than what it is to be slaves to sin. It's hard for us to imagine what it was like for these people, how these Hebrews longed for that day. As that great, great as that day was, though, this day we've heard about, then they finally go out. There's a greater day than this day when they went out. When in verse 37 we read that the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses, that is in Egypt, to Succoth. They were leaving. They were really leaving. They were leaving slavery behind. My friends, there is a greater day than that. And it is the greater day that is in the freedom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a much bigger day than that. It's a much more important day. Because there's something more important than what the children of Israel, the great-great-great-grandchildren of Abraham experienced being set free from slavery. And that greater day is the work of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what, children, as well as adults, we know what slavery is. We've just heard our, our law homily as we do each week. We've just been reminded of just one of the commandments that we struggle to keep. And indeed, in our own ability and by our own strength, we cannot keep that commandment uh, to not murder, to not have hateful thoughts. Uh, there's that element within us. But you know, as we sit here, there's most of us, I hope, all of us are, are new creatures in Christ. But as Paul has written in Romans, our flesh has another nature. It's not been glorified. It's still bent towards sin. And there's that war within. And there's a struggle. The good that I would do, I do not do. And the very evil that I hate, I don't find myself doing we know something about slavery to sin, even as the people have been set free. We're going to see that with the children of Israel as they go out. Even as they're set free, there will be within them a longing to go back. Again, that's not hard for us to imagine. We have something of that in our spiritual realities. We're all born into sin. Our first parent, Adam, sinned, and therefore we're conceived in sin. We're born in sin. It is our very nature to be sinners. It is all we can do is but to sin. We are slaves to sin, and there's but one who can set us free from that slavery to sin, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we heard how the Lord broke the will of the hard-hearted Pharaoh. Pharaoh who hardened his heart. Plague after plague after plague. According to his nature, he was a sinful man. He hardened his heart. And then we're told that God then hardened his heart. Consistent with his nature, it became even harder. But then God broke Pharaoh. God struck even Pharaoh's firstborn. That's what we picked up with verse 30 where we left off. In that night, the firstborn sons throughout all the land of Egypt. Remember the plagues? Children, remember how with each of the plagues we heard how there was, the darkness was throughout all the land. The hailstorm was throughout all the land. The locusts came and it was throughout all the land. Well, the death of the firstborn was all across Egypt into every house. And there was a great cry that went up, even from Pharaoh's house. Remember, Pharaoh, he thought it was a god. He saw himself as the supreme, the god over all of Egypt. He was the one that the Egyptians looked to to protect them, to provide for them, the one to speak with great wisdom. And we've heard how through the plagues there's this great contest 
really it's no contest at all, as we see in the end. But Pharaoh thinks he's God. He thinks he can go toe-to-toe with Moses. Moses is coming. What did Moses say? The Lord has said, let my people go. And Pharaoh was like, I don't know the Lord. And remember one of our great themes, children? You remember, children, what we've heard? One of the great themes here in Egypt and in Exodus is that the Lord is making Himself known to Pharaoh, to Egypt, and to the Hebrew children. God's making Himself known. Well, that night, Pharaoh rose in the night. There, even in his house, his son was dead. There was nothing Pharaoh could do about it. He couldn't stop it from happening. He couldn't bring his son back. He's been greatly humbled. He's been greatly humiliated. And the king of Egypt has learned that there is but one living and true God. The God of the Hebrews, who is the creator over all. The God of over all the earth. The Lord and the giver of life, who is able to destroy as well as to give life as He wills. Children, I hope you're still listening. And, and I'm wondering if some of you are, are saying, well, Pastor, you know, this this is this is a great history lesson. This this is pretty fascinating stuff. Isn't that what we've seen with these plagues and all that? Um, pretty amazing. But you might be saying, Pastor, you know, this happened a long time ago. What does it what does it mean to me? What does it have to do with my life? Well, I answer you this this lesson points to the very last day. For there is a day coming, the last day, the day when God will gather all people, young and old, men and women, rich and poor, boys and girls, from every place upon the whole earth, and even from every single period throughout all the history of the earth, God will gather all of humanity. Every single human will stand before a great white throne of judgment. And there will be one seated upon that throne. The Son of God, the God-Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom God has given the nations because of His obedience to the Father and coming into the world to save sinners, God has appointed that He will judge all of humanity for every action of children, every action, and even your idle, careless words. We will give it an account. And just as Israel escaped the death on that terrifying night in Egypt so long ago, because they were under the blood of the Lamb on that final day, before that great throne of judgment, there is one way, there is only one way to escape the judgment and the justice of a holy God that He will dispense upon sinners through all eternity. And my hope is that you right now, children, are saying, Pastor, what is that hope? How is it that I can escape destruction? How can I escape death at that great day? How can I avoid having that cry of Pharaoh? Pastor, please tell me how I can escape. I will. Before we end this sermon, I will tell you how it is that you can escape the wrath of God in that great day of judgment. We're going to use three main headings. You might be saying, well, the pastor's been having four for a while. He's had five for a while. This morning, I'm not a Baptist preacher all of a sudden, but we just have three points. We'll be looking at the defeated foe, the departure of Israel, and the decree of the Lord. Now, as we come to some of these headings, I'm going to be a little more extensive, but I wanted those to be brief. The defeated foe, the departure of Israel, and the decree of the Lord. And then we'll have some conclusion with application. So we have the defeated foe. We picked up in verse 30. We see that through verses 30 through 33. Remember what Moses has recorded in the past six chapters? He's recorded, yeah, the pathetic, puny, Weak attempts of a mere man who believes himself to be God to do battle with the living and true God. 
there's a saying in our day, you know, people might tell you about something and say, well, how'd that work out for you? You might say that to Pharaoh. Well, you know, how, how's this contest gone? You know, you're, you're going, as you think, toe-to-toe with God, which is absolute absurdity. How's it worked out for you, Pharaoh? Uh, you've lost every contest. Your magicians have been made out to be as they are fools. Your nation is destroyed. It's in ruins and in shambles. The wealth of Egypt is destroyed. And now your people know that your claim as their king to be a god is a lie. Their religion is shattered. Your religion, all that you've hoped in. And we're told in the text that the Egyptians, they see Moses as very great in the land. They respect Moses. I think the text would have us to understand they respect Moses more than Pharaoh. And the Egyptians have become willing, because God's prevailed, they've been willing to give their precious items, the, the valuable things that they have in the land, gold and silver and clothing, and, and as we learn by inference later on, wagons and carts, all this great wealth and great wood and bra- anything of value. The Egyptians, they're willing to send it out to these, send and give it to those who have formerly served them as slaves. I think you all know that I like to have us sing a psalm too often. It's a good reason. It's a powerful lesson in Psalm 2. I'm thinking about it even at this point. What is it David writes when he considers the kings and the rulers of the worlds? Kings and rulers, presidents, even those of this day that... What did he say? They, they collude. They, they plot together, uh, seeking to say to the Lord God and to send, you know, we'll overthrow you. The psalmist says, Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled. But a little. Pharaoh had not heard those words, but he has learned this lesson. Well, the Lord has one more display of his supremacy over Pharaoh. And it came in the dark of the night, the silence of the night. The Lord had passed throughout the land. A destroyer came while the people sleep. They had gone to bed in, 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 in a certain level of complacency. Like every other night, they lay down on their their heads on the beds. They would have tucked their children in comfortably for the night. And then every family, family after family, woke to discover that their firstborn sons were all dead. No exemptions. All across, the text told us early, from Pharaoh's household, even to a man who was in prison for some crime, if he had a firstborn son, even his son, was dead all across the land. And the silence of the night was rent with screams of agony. Parents crying out only as parents can at the loss of a child. All throughout the land, a great cry went up through the whole land. Imagine that from one end of Egypt to the other, hundreds of miles in breadth and thousands and thousands of square miles in every household, a cry. A great cry, even as the cries of the Hebrews had gone up before God as they were enslaved. What did we have? Mothers and fathers who could not be comforted. They had no comfort. Their their man's religion, their, their man's idolatry, there's no hope. You know, had they gone to Pharaoh's temple uh, to seek comfort from their God, their, their king, they, they would have found him in the same state, crying out, his son too was dead. Pharaoh's proved to all in the land, and especially to himself, that he was no God. He was but a mere man with all the weakness of men. His firstborn, who was to rule 
as a god over Egypt after him lay lifeless in his bed. I don't think Pharaoh would say at this point, I don't know this Lord. He's come to understand who this Lord is. And Eric and man completely broken. Like King Herod, who would rule in Israel over a thousand years later. He accepts the praise of the people that, oh, he's like a God. And rather than give God the glory, he was suddenly eaten by worms and died. God alone will be glorified. He will not share his glory with another. And that is true for the rulers across the lands today as well. Well, in verse 31, defeated Pharaoh rises in the night. Whether we are told, he says, then he called for Moses and Aaron by night. We're told earlier that uh, uh, he says to Moses, I, if I ever see you again, you're a dead man. And, and Moses also went out and said, you're, you're right, I never will see your face again. Uh, we don't know if this is suddenly an exception because of the extremity of the situation or if he just summons him to come to his chambers and there's so much shame and humiliation that he sends out some ambassador. I think that's what's most likely that he has someone go out Summon Pharaoh or send Moses and Aaron, but nonetheless, Pharaoh's message is clear to them. Notice what the message is. Remember what Moses came to Pharaoh in the beginning? He says, The Lord God of the Hebrews says, Let my people go, that they may go and worship me. And Pharaoh's trying to negotiate on the terms of that all along, but not anymore. Moses and Aaron, they come by night. And Pharaoh says, rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. Those are the words of a defeated man, of a humiliated man, a man who's been brought down to his knees. And isn't it interesting what he tacks on the end? Meekly. And bless me also. But you know what's interesting here? There have been other times after a plague where Pharaoh says, okay, okay. And he tries to negotiate something. He says, and would you just pray that the Lord would stop it? And, and Moses went out and prayed, you know, that the locusts would leave and other things would happen. And the other plagues would be stopped. You know what? There's no record here that Moses prayed. Pharaoh this time. He asked to be blessed, but there's no record that Moses blessed him. Nor should we be surprised. He was not a man worthy of blessing. Indeed, the only hope that that Pharaoh could have had is that he would say, may your God have mercy on my soul. May your God have mercy on me, a sinner. I have defied the living God of heaven and all that has come upon me I'm worthy of and I'm deserving of. May God have mercy. That's the cry of any sinner that would begin to come to God for salvation. But he just, he says, you know, and bless me also. Does he even have any understanding? He didn't say, have your God bless me. But he just says, bless me also. Well, the people of Egypt are of the same mind as their Pharaoh. Uh, a long time ago, they've had enough. All these plagues that have come on their land because of their their arrogant uh, leader have afflicted them. It's their livestock. Uh, they've endured flies and lice and frogs. They've endured the, the death of their livestock, the, the hailstorms that have stripped their trees and destroyed their crops. The darkness was so dark you couldn't even move about. They've endured all of this. And they too want the people gone. The people's words are more so than their ruler. Verse 33, then the Egyptians urged the people. It's not a command. Even with Pharaoh's, is not a command. I mean, rise and go out. He's conceding what he's been told, what he's been commanded by the living of God. He, he finally says, all right, go. But the Egyptians, they urged the people. It's like they might send them out of the land. And notice, in haste, hurry. 
Go. Why? For they said, there's a conviction upon the Egyptians, we shall all be dead. All this destruction, and now their firstborn's dead. In their mind, they're thinking, well, what's next? Uh, you know, is it my daughters? Is it all my children? Is it I, my wife? Lest we all be dead. There's a terror of the living God that has come upon the people, and they want the Hebrews to make a swift departure. And indeed, they made a swift departure. We're told that it was so swift that the people took, this is the Israelites, verse 34, they took their dough before it was leavened. Because children, what they would do is they'd mix up their flour and their dough and they'd lay it out because there's bacteria floating in the air and then that bacteria would work on it. We call it yeast. And it would cause it to rise and get air and it makes a nice, life, fluffy loaf. Unlike unleavened bread. But remember, God has set up for them this period now. They're going to remember this with unleavened bread. Because this is the way it is. There's, there's no time for it to become leavened. Uh, they just have their dough there. We're told it's in their kneading bowls and it's bound up on their shoulders. They're leaving in haste. There's no time for these things. And they went out from the land. They left in haste. And God had foretold them, be ready. Do you remember the Passover meal, children? There was specific instructions that God gave through Moses. He says, put on your belt, gird up your loins, put sandals on your feet, and have your staff, your, your staff for walking, be ready to go. Eat the meal in haste. I'm about to deliver you. And now it's happening. And Pharaoh's saying, go. The Egyptians are saying, go. The preparation was very valid. It was the right thing for them to do. And so they go. They leave. They flee the land. They leave the house of bondage. Just a simple application at this point. An application for all who would seek to harm God's people. And I'm not thinking purely of the literal descendants of Abraham. For Abraham's true seed that will enter into the presence and the glory of God who are those who, like Abraham, believed God. And it was accounted unto him as righteousness. That was God's promise that from every tribe and tongue and nation he would have a seed as numerous as the sand upon the shore. These are the children of Abraham. These are his true spiritual descendants. These are the ones who have eternal life. And we know that as we make our way through Egypt, uh, through the rest of Exodus, we're going to see that many of these went out. The, the majority of those who go out, they don't have the faith of Abraham. They're going to perish in the wilderness. But the warning is for those who would seek to harm God's people. God still dwells on high. And His name is the Lord, the covenant faithful God. He is faithful to His people. And His eyes run to and fro throughout all the earth. People of God, be comforted by that. Every slight, every insult that you endure for the sake and the name of Christ, is surely we will. In the Beatitudes, Jesus said, if you're persecuted for my name's sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For so persecuted they the prophets who are before you. God sees as a warning for those who would seek to afflict God's people. And indeed, there's encouragement for God's children. God misses nothing. He sees every kindness that you do by faith, as well as all meanness done in sin. People, O oh Lord, be comforted by this truth. Your Father is watching over you. And one day, at that great throne of judgment, He will right every wrong. If you're like me, there are events in the past that just couldn't be resolved. There was, it was an injustice. You know, with all the attempts to resolve and set things right and to be at peace, and they're not resolved. Sometimes I can remember as a parent, there were times where my children had altercations and, you know, as parents you can figure out who is right or who is wrong. And I can remember saying to them, one of you, maybe both of you have done something. I don't know. And it's... We'll just have to wait. The Lord will settle it on the day of judgment. He knows what happened, and He will dispense justice because He is an all-wise judge. Even as Abraham appealed to God, Genesis 18, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? 
He surely will. Well, we move on secondly, the departure of Israel from the house of bondage. Verse 35 through 36 tell us that the people obeyed Moses' earlier command and that the Lord had given the Hebrews favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses. And they had asked for the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, clothing. This time it's more than silver and gold, we're told, the clothing. They were asking for anything. And the Egyptians, what did they do? Verse 36, the Lord had given favor to the people in sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them whatever they requested. We will remember that when it comes to the building of the tabernacle. All those beautiful, glorious, valuable things. This is where they came from. They came out of Egypt. And thus, they plundered the Egyptians. The promise that the Lord God had made back in Exodus 3. If you flip back there. Exodus 3 and verse 21 came to pass. God speaking to Moses, He says, I will give the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go out, you shall know not, you shall not go out empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. It's before the plagues. Back during the time of heavy slavery. And yet God has said, I will make it so. Now, when we read here, they plundered the Egyptians. The language in the original here should lead us to understand that, that they were not going out with the spoils of war. Like, like a victorious army. Israel has not conquered Egypt. The Lord has. And, 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 and indeed, Israel is referred to as Usually it's translated hosts, some translations say armies. These are the armies of the Lord. But they've not been the victorious and conquering ones. The, the words, the way we should understand it here, is that Israel took what was offered to them by the Egyptians. These were spoils freely given by the Egyptians who were in dread of the Lord God. Of Israel. Remember, they're saying, We want you to go. We're all soon going to be dead. What do you want? Do you want this? You got a little more, you know, can I put a little more on your load? You know, what about that? Would you like this? You just, please just take and go. The terror of the Lord was upon the land. Oh, that God would spread such terror in our day. Now, I hope you're paying attention. Verse 37 is a key marker in the book of Exodus. Notice this. Verse 37 ends the first portion of the book of Exodus. We've been in this first part, the, the section that I called oppression. And verse 37 leads us into our next section, liberation. Look at what verse 37 says. Then the children of Israel journeyed. They journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. Uh, 600,000 men on foot beside the children. They were leaving. This is the exodus. They are going out. The, the unimaginable. Even days before, it's happening. What had long been foretold, the promise to their father Abraham, it is happening. They went out of the land. And thus, the oppression is over. They are liberated. This is a literal and physical liberation. But my friends, if you have become a new creature in Christ, you've had that day of liberation. You've had that moment when the Holy Spirit has given you a heart of flesh, removing your heart of stone. When He has set you free, the, the work of Christ accomplished on the cross, He applies it to you, and the power of sin in your life is broken. And you are set free. You are liberated. You are taken out of a, a, a kingdom of darkness and, and a, a kingdom of slavery to sin with a, a wicked and vile leader, a, a man, a, a, the, the angel of lies, the father of all lies. You are taken out and you are liberated. And you are brought into the kingdom of the Son of God's love and to light and to beauty and to life and to glory. What a moment. This is a foretelling of this is this is a picturing of that. 
in, it's really paltry in comparison. I mean, they'd be set free from slavery, but as we're going to see, the Israelites still have a sin problem. But when Jesus liberates us, we're set free from sin. We're at war with sin. It's that work of sanctification. But we are free. As you've heard me say, the saints right now who are around the throne of God in heaven are no more justified than you are who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. But the realities, the physical realities, all the Hebrews are leaving. It's a host, and, and Moses records that what a mighty band. They go to this first stop of Succoth that, you know, as best uh, scholars can figure, it's a, an area near some lakes. I would have told you the names of the lakes, and you were just like, I don't know where that's at. So we won't go with that. They're going to Succoth. They're off to Succoth, and they stop to luck to Succoth, and there's a counting. And, and this is a mighty band, the Lord of hosts. Who's counted? 600,000 men. And, and in the nature of the, the Hebrew language and the way the story is told, these are men of fighting age. Which was to say, those 30 years old and older. Uh, these men would, by and large, have had wives. And we're told that there were children. You know, there's no mention of the wives. Why? Because a husband and wife are one flesh. That's often the case in the Scripture. The men are counted. It doesn't mean the women don't count. They're there. But it's 600,000 fighting men. And you figure, well, we'll just go with this. These men are all of age. They're married. And just assume they've got, you know, don't, let's not be too stingy, you know, two or three children. They may have four or five or six or seven children, right? The Lord's blessed them. The more that Pharaoh oppressed them, the more that God blessed them. He could not stomp them out. They kept having babies upon babies. And it was a terror to Pharaoh. This is a host of millions. Millions of living souls going out of the land. They're leaving because God has brought them out. I don't think it's unreasonable to think that there's million, you know, six, seven, eight million. And we should not scoff at the very concept. Let's just think about Moses for a moment. Moses has been confronting Pharaoh. Moses came from the backside of a wilderness leading sheep. Good preparation for leading people. I'm sorry, but that's the analogy of us as humanity. We're dumb sheep. Some of you know I lived in Scotland and got to experience and see what sheep were like. It's a pretty good analogy for us. Moses has gone from leading sheep. He's gone to be an, an, amb- an ambassador, an emissary of God, the prophet of God. He is the prophet of God. He will continue to be the prophet of God. But now he's leading these people who have no doubt been discouraged and disillusioned and, and maybe scoffed at him, you know, in their tents talk about eh, Moses guy is just he's really not getting it together. And and now he's leading them out. We're told when you come to the book of Numbers of this, uh, the fighting men at that time were 603,000. Further support for my point that I'm making here. But now Moses is leading millions of people. In our sermon discussion over the last couple of weeks, some of you asked questions. Did others lead with Israel? You know, we we're talking about the, the Passover and, and how those who had the blood on the door and the post and the lentil, you know, the death angel didn't come. Were, were there Egyptians that had become God-fearers uh, who had say, moved to Goshen and, and they had done as Moses commanded, put blood on their doorpost? I'm inclined to think, yes, probably so, because look at what the text says. I put my eye back on it. Okay, yes, in verse 37, a mix, and 38, a mixed multitude went up with them. 
with the Israelites. A mixed multitude went out with them also. Because within Egypt, there were, there were lots of slaves from other parts of the world. And hey, if, if all these Hebrew slaves are going, I'm slipping in with a band. I'm out of here. You know, Pharaoh's broken. Pharaoh, uh, Egypt's in shambles. I'm going with these guys, right? Wouldn't you? And that's what Moses records. It was a mixed multitude. How many were there? How many different nationalities? How many different people? I don't know, but we're told later that Moses married a woman who was a Cushite. Where'd she come from? She came out with the band out of Egypt. God brought out a host in should we not? Should we be surprised? Because the promise to Abraham was every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And it, that's, that's just not just in the gospel age in which we are in. God is doing that. There's little examples of that all down through the Old Testament where the Lord has demonstrated that. So these people went out with them. They went out with also a great deal of livestock. Let us make a mental note right here and mark this down. Let's not forget this. Moses came from leading sheep in the wilderness. And then he went head to head with the most powerful man on the earth. And God has been preparing him through that aisle now to lead people in the wilderness. A whole new set of leadership challenges. God has prepared him for it. But we're going to see, as I've said, we're going to see Moses grow some more. As long as he keeps listening to the Lord and obeying him, as Moses has done thus far, Moses will do just fine in all things. But Moses is going to face tremendous challenges. Moses and the people have much to learn. However, they have left Egypt. They are liberated. But Israel is not fully free. So this section that we're, we've just entered into with verse 7 is what we're going to call a, one of the major divisions, liberation. It's a couple of chapters. We're, chapter 15, we'll see where this ends. And so God inspires Moses then to write a summary of this period. Verse 39, we read, remember the unleavened bread and the bowls? So as they're going, what they do? They got to eat on the way. They break them, bake the leaven cakes of dough, which they had brought out of Egypt, where there was no leaven because they were driven out of the land of Egypt, and they could not wait. They, for they had not, for they had, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. Now the sojourn of Israel, who had lived in Egypt, was 430 years, just as God had told Moses, and it came to pass at the end of the 430 years on that very same day. Who can do that? God alone. God alone. He told Moses that, I mean, Abraham be that long. And on that very same day, 430 years later, it came to pass. We saw that in the book of John, didn't we? Time and again, they wanted to put Jesus to death. They wanted to throw Him off a cliff. They wanted to stone Him. But they couldn't because His hour had not yet come. God is sovereign. God is Lord over all. And so that very same day, it came to pass all the armies of the Lord went out of the land of Egypt. It is a night, a solemn observance to the Lord to, for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. That is, the night of the Lord, a solemn observance for the children of Israel throughout their generations. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because next chapter we're going to spend a lot of time on this. But what we do see is in this summary... They went, what it was, they're eating unleavened bread. God had told them that they're going to have a feast of unleavened bread to remember this for a whole week, unleavened bread, because they're to remember how it was when they came out. But one more thing before we go on. Remember, there's this mixed multitude. And so we see the decree of the Lord concerning the Passover meal. And we move through this quickly because these things will be reiterated again. God made a decree, this monumental decree, the Exodus brought about by the death of the firstborn, was to be marked annually. It was the beginning of their year forever. And God told them this before it took place. He gave them instructions about the Passover meal that there was to be eaten that night and that they were to do this going forward. Now the Lord tells it to them again. He tells them more than He told them at first. As a matter of fact, Moses will have more from the Lord to tell them 
in the next chapter. But what I want us to take notice of here is that the Lord gives instructions of those who could not take part of the Passover meal, which has an implication to us. We come to the Lord's table. There are those who cannot come to the Lord's table, even as there were those in Egypt who cannot come and eat partake of the Passover meal. Well, in verse 45 through 40, 43 through 45, we found out someone who is just passing through the land. He's a sojourner, just a foreigner. He he's on his way going from point A to point B, and he comes into their midst for a season. He can't eat the Passover, or she can't eat the Passover. A temporary resident, somebody who moves into their midst for a little while, he's not hanging around, he can't eat it. A hired worker, he can't eat of the Passover meal. But then we're told who could eat of the Passover meal. Someone who you bought with your money, a slave, but he had to be circumcised. This was a mark of being a part of the people of God, of the covenant household of God. A circumcised slave then could eat the Passover meal. And then God gives them instructions. The meal was not to be carried from house to house. I'll put it this way. It was not a progressive supper. Okay? You prepared it, you went in your house, and you ate it as a family. It was a time for focus on fellowship within the family. And God again tells them, no bones were to be broken. And this requirement showed that this meal was different from other family meals where bones were broken. Things they ate. You know, breaking joints and taking it apart and eating an animal, more, making it more convenient to distribute the meat. But when it came to the Passover land, you weren't supposed to do this. This is unique. And what does it point to? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the prophecy of Him was that not one bone would be broken. We are told in John's Gospel that when the soldiers were sent to break the legs of those on the cross to speed up their deaths, that when they came to Jesus, He was already dead. And so they didn't break His bones. Thus fulfilling the prophecy concerning Him. The Passover lamb, no broken bones, was pointing some 3,000 years across history to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Moses then goes on to teach that it was essential for a stranger who wanted to identify as a Hebrew had to be circumcised. Remember, it was a mixed multitude came out. They may not have all stayed, but some may have said, no, we want to be of your people. We want to join with you. And indeed, they had to be circumcised in order to eat of the Passover meal. Well, this principle carries over into the New Testament period. In order for a person to come to the Lord's table, you hear me say this week by week, He or she must be of such years to be able to discern the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have must made a credible profession of faith before the elders. And that same person must be baptized. Even as in that day they had to be circumcised, baptism and circumcision, they hold the same meeting. Both are pictures of the Holy Spirit setting apart a people unto God. The Holy Spirit... We're bringing people out of the world, the people who are to be holy to the Lord, the people cleansed from the common to the holy. That's the picture of circumcision, the removing of what is unclean. That's a picture of what baptism is, the washing of what is away of uncleanliness. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, And an unbelieving wife is sanctified by her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But now they are holy. This is not salvation. But it is a cleaning, a cleansing, setting apart from the common, from the world, to be holy, to be part of a covenant community. Circumcision and baptism have that same lesson. Well, let's conclude. All of his life, Pharaoh was convinced that he was a god. Can you imagine that? Of course you can imagine that. Children, even the littlest of you children, you live your lives where you think you're God. And when somebody tells you no because of the nature you have as a sinner, that you think you're God because that's what happened in the fall, you throw a tantrum. You get angry because you think the world revolves around me. I'm a little god and part of a parent's job is to teach a child is no, there's there's but one God. And you're not it. 
There's but one God. Well, that's Pharaoh and whatever he told him that. And so he spent his whole life doing what he wanted. He enslaved people. He enslaved the Hebrews. But then one day he began to have encounters with the one who is God, the Lord over all. Just like so many people today, he thought he could best God, outmaneuver God, or get one up on God. Listen to me. Sinners are still trying to live their lives today like they're God. And apart from the Lord Jesus Christ subduing you by His grace, you will live your life as though you're God. And even as a new creature in Christ, that's one of our struggles, isn't it? We're talking about the Sixth Commandment. We get angry with someone else because they didn't want to do what we wanted to do. We think we're God. Young people think they're indestructible. They think they're going to drink obscene amounts of alcohol, that they can sleep around and have sex and never catch STDs. There are young children who think that they can be sassy brats to their mom and dad and nothing will come of it. Notice Pharaoh came to finally understand that he was not God. Not a God in any sense, nor are you. Pharaoh experienced the full power of the Almighty God of heaven. And Pharaoh was no longer able to seek to negotiate. And then he fully complied to God's command, which was, let my people go. And he says, you may go. And indeed, let all tyrants and government take this lesson to heart. You are fools for thinking that you can hinder or prevent God and His people from gathering from worship. To think that you can prevent the going forth of the Gospel to the four corners of the earth. Let kings and leaders and parliaments and presidents take it to heart. There's but one God. And you should listen to Him. You should start where Pharaoh ended up. Yielded to God the Almighty. You might say, well, Pastor, they're not listening to this preached word. Well, it might come to their ears. But you know what? You and I are listening. We all have had those events that have scared us for a moment. Done something sinful. We weren't thinking. We were running along with sin. And then we realized consequences. We were terrified. What if somebody finds out? What if this becomes known? What will happen to me? We never get away with sin. Sometimes we, we sin in great ways and it never comes to light. Well, remember we talked about that great white throne that Christ is seated upon. Sinners in that great and final day of judgment. When you and I, every one of us, remember in Egypt, the all, the all, the all-encompassing, the all, and that great day of the Lord, all will stand before Him. And they will have to give an account to the one who alone is God over, God over all. And you will not be able to look at Him if you are a filthy sinner. Yes, your eyes will be cast down. You will tremble at the presence of His holiness. Indeed, thinking about Psalm 1, the unrighteous won't stand in the congregation of the righteous. They will be on their face before the Almighty, laid out before Him with whom they will have to do, and He will be terrifying to behold. Listen to how John describes this one who is seated in the throne of God. From Revelation 19, John says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of his wrath, the wrath of Almighty God. 
And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Friend, you do not negotiate with such a one. Back earlier in the sermon, I said that I would tell you, as you think of that question, Pastor, please tell me, how can I escape death at the end of time when Jesus comes to judge? Pastor, how can I not be cast into outer darkness? How can I escape the slavery of sin? That is the beauty of the passage that we've been studying. Because we've seen this passage points to Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. The Lamb of God. In Exodus, we hear that innocent lamb or a male goat, a year old or less. We've heard how the elders obeyed Moses' command, God's command, and they slaughtered those animals and they took the blood and they, they put it on the doorpost and on the lentil so that those who were under the blood in the house, that that substitute, that blood was spilled, that being under that, they were not destroyed when the destroyer passed throughout the land. And the firstborn in their houses did not die. That is a fourth. That is pointing forward to some events about 1,300 years later, and some 2,000 years ago now. The mighty Son of God, who will be a terror to many on that day of judgment, a day far worse than that night when the destroyer went throughout the land of Egypt. There's one to be found in. Even Jesus Christ, who spilled his blood on the cross. He is the perfect Savior, the Redeemer whose blood washes away sin. His blood who atones for sin. A Redeemer whose blood covers not a doorpost, not a lentil, but every sinner who will flee to him and say, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus met and bore the wrath of God that you and I deserve. He received the destruction that sinners deserve. And Jesus bore it in the cross on the flesh. For his, He was forsaken so that we sinners could be embraced and welcomed to God and given eternal life. So children, if you would escape death, if you would escape the destruction of that great and terrible day that is to come, flee to Christ. And Jesus says, come and welcome. Jesus said, suffer even the little children to come unto me. And children, I would encourage you to have great hope because Jesus said to the adults, except that you have the faith of a little child, you cannot be saved. A little child isn't full of pretenses and arguments and lofty ideas. Just come simply and say, Lord, save me. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I cast myself on you alone. And then, in that day of the great white throne of judgment, you won't be on your face. You will behold your Redeemer as He is. You will have glorified eyes. And you'll be able to see the lofty One, even the exalted Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God-Man, arrayed in splendor and glory with myriads and myriads of angels around singing His praises, you'll be able to look on Him, your Redeemer, the One who will say, Welcome. Come and enter into the rest that I and my Father have prepared for you. I welcome you. On that day, the only place to be is to be found in Christ and under His blood. Amen? Let us pray. O oh Lord our God, we pray that Your Word would not return void. That the lesson that Pharaoh learned, though it did not carry him through to repentance and life, Lord, may that lesson teach us Lord, as we have heard these things, O oh God, break our hearts as sinners and draw us and bring us even to the Lord Jesus Christ who saves, that we might be washed with His blood and under His blood 
that on that great and terrible day of judgment, we need not tremble, but that we can stand with faith and confidence. Not even faith, but faith realized, hope attained, seen, a blessed Redeemer who has loved us with an everlasting love from before the foundation of the earth, who is love itself. Lord, bless us. Keep us until that day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You'd take your worship.